0: we're back on date with the night and today's guest is the legendary dj promoter and founder and creative director of iheart comics frankie chan how are you frankie
1: Hi, I'm excited to be here. I guess I'm not allowed to say your name, right? So
0: you can say my name, Liv. You can just, yeah, it's okay. We're kind of being on the DL, but you know, I'm still giving out my first name. That's fine. I
1: wasn't sure how anonymous it was. So thank you, Liv. Nice to be here.
0: (laughs) Nice to meet you and nice to have you on the pod. I've been so looking forward to this episode because before I even was talking to you over Instagram, so many people were like, you got to talk to Frankie, especially Lena. She was like, get him on the pod. And I was like, yes, this needs to happen. You have such a long history connected to the music and party scene in LA. Can you explain how this all got started and a timeline of the different parties you launched
1: Sure. Well, I moved to Los Angeles on Devil's Night 2003. That's October 30th. That's a Crow reference for anyone out there, children of the 90s. But yeah, October 30th was my first day in Los Angeles. And I started throwing parties in Los Angeles very soon after that. I'd say by November, I had my first event that I was doing which was at Beauty Bar. And that was an event I started with Harmar Superstar called Fucking Awesome. And that party was very simple in its nature in the sense of like, I just moved there from Seattle. And my friend Travis and I were kind of sleeping on friends' couches, trying to find a job. And Harmar was someone that I knew from promoting shows in Seattle and from kind of other mutual friends. And he had also just moved here. And then Beauty Bar was opened up by and managed by a man named Callie DeWitt, who is probably most notorious for being Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love's nanny. If you look at the inside CD cover of In Utero, he's the guy in fishnets in the tub.
0: Oh, wow. He's
1: also a really incredible artist, kind of a, a figure of the scene. And I had really only met him one other time prior, but his younger brother, Nick DeWitt played drums in Pretty Girls Make Graves, who was a band who I was very good friends with in Seattle. We actually shared a floor where their practice space was right next to my apartment. So I heard them all the time in every iteration of that band. And Nick put me in touch with his brother when I moved here and was like, this guy used to throw parties in Seattle. And he was like, I have a new club. Do you want to throw parties? And I said, sure. Because again, I think I had only at that point found a job at the Virgin Megastore. In the years leading up to moving to Los Angeles, I had been playing drums in bands or being a DJ in Bellingham or Seattle or back home in Bloomington, Indiana. And I always drew all the flyers for my own parties or or shows. And this kind of became like a centerpiece of uh, trying to launch this party fucking awesome. And it was just a way of like getting out in LA and meeting people because I only knew Harmar, Steve Aoki, Callie, my friend Zane and one other person, Zane's girlfriend, Lexi. So it was very much this like, how do I figure out how to live here? And I kind of having a party, having a place to like funnel this energy of drawing and being out in nightlife and meeting people and inviting people to this party was a, a really great way to like do it. In addition, when I lived in Seattle, I was an assistant booking agent at a rock club there called Graceland. And through doing that, I really met almost every touring artist at the time. You know, like Interpol, Yay, Yaz, Death Cab, Modest Mouse, on and on and on. We used to do this thing up there where we'd ask band members to DJ, which was not a common practice at the time. You're talking like 2001, 2002, 2003, which, you know, would have varied results, but it was always like a really kind of attractive thing to put on a flyer. And so, when I moved to LA and started that party between Harmar and I, we really knew every single person that was out there in the world. And I think we did two or three of those parties before a third person joined, which was Steve Aoki. Now, Steve had a record label named Dimmok, and one of the artists that he had released on his label was Pretty Girls Make Graves. So, I had met him a couple times in Seattle when he was up there and he actually booked a show for my band at his spot in Santa Barbara when we were on tour. So we like knew each other kinda. But Steve was had started to DJ and he was playing at this other local spot called the M Bar, which is kind of like this hipster spot that maybe had like 40 or 50 people showing up to it. And this is no 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 knock on Steve. It just keep in mind at LA at the time, there was no scene. There was like 200 people total that was going to party. So to have 40 or 50 people showing up was really good. Mm-hmm. And Steve and I immediately connected musically and kind of with our like DJ theory of hey, we're both really terrible at this, but we want to have fun. And I invited him to join Harmar and I at Fucking Awesome, I think in January of 04. And immediately it was so much fun. It's like you have to be a part of this every week. And Within a couple weeks of that, we had this weird kid with the headband and a camera wandering the party, which was Mark the Cobra Snake at the time going as Polaroid scene. I think it was his second night out ever taking photos, or at least going to a party. I know he went to like a bunch of shows prior. And we immediately fell in love with him and this kind of idea that holy shit, you can see the photos. <laughs> like it was like such a mind-blowing thing. And Harmar was very busy with his career as an artist, but Steve and Mark and I, I think found our careers together in that moment where it was like, we shared a very specific outlook of like what a party could be, what the music was and the type of people that were coming to that space and We had all kind of had this similar background in like branding and promoting and whether it's promoting a show or promoting a record or promoting your own band or promoting your art, like we had kind of been through those paces and it was a very natural thing to apply that to a party, a scene, kind of like have a strategy for it beyond just like, hey, it's going to be fun. That's kind of how it started. You know, like I came up with the name IR Comics because when Steve joined officially, he really wanted to have Denmark on the flyer. And I was like, well, fuck, I got to come up with something because I don't want to say like Frankie Chan Presents. So I was kind of pushed in this box of being like, all right, I want to call iHeart Comics. I'm drawing all the flyers. I like comics. Yeah. And to me, it was never about like, check me out. I'm a nerd. It was more like I'm taking this thing that I'm passionate about and I'm putting it on the same level of cool as everything else. you know. And I was definitely learning a lot of lessons from Steve at that time because he had been so kind of determined to have a specific voice with the Dimock brand. And I was very like individualized but began to understood how much you could enterprise when you had kind of this additional touch point.
0: Yeah, and it was kind of a disruptive way that you all organized yourselves and promoted your events. You're quoted in Lena Abascal's book saying the other big club promoters in town would come to our parties and get so confused. Why are all these people here and why does the music suck? Did you feel that people were sort of threatened?
1: For sure. And I think it's really important to understand what Los Angeles was at the time. You know, this was pre a Space. We hadn't gotten even that far yet. it was pre-Blog House. So the kind of music that you're referring to, we weren't playing yet. We were coming out of the shackles of kind of a time in punk rock that was really defined by rules and not having fun. And, you know, you started to see cracks in that with bands like The Faint or Peaches or even Daft Punk, you know, that were like kind of taking the seriousness of indie rock and post-punk and bands like Fugazi. And I'm a big fan of all that stuff and all the politics of it but it was a little anti-fun and you know as a kid I was born in 78 I really grew up in the 80s I always loved dance music and pop songs and you know I grew up with my father watching MTV TV every day all day so this idea of like going out and having fun, dancing to music that I could sing along to was a really appealing thing and something that a whole scene of people that were kind of starved of that type of expression. And when we started DJing, it was really embracing 80s hits and hip hop hits of the time. Because think about hip hop in like the late 90s to 2005, 2006, kind of before we got into all the like electronic and blog house stuff that era was very good. Mm-hmm. We were just kind of having a really good time and then mixing in bands like LCD Sound System and Yeah, Yeahs and that kind of thing. But going back to the culture of Los Angeles, Coachella was like two years old, you know, and mm-hmm. it was pretty small. There was like indie dance nights at Echo and Bang that were like 18 plus and kind of playing things like The Smiths and The Cure. But there was nowhere that was for a particular scene of hipsters or punks or like, however you wanted to define it, kind of anyone on the edge of culture. And everything was centered around celebrity and bottle service and, you know, needing to be of a particular profile to have access to go in the club. And then once you were in the club, everything was very expensive and the music was top 40. And that was the established norm. And being new in Los Angeles, never being around celebrity culture, I'd be lying to say if it wasn't fun to sometimes go to those clubs or find ways in and just kind of like stare and gawk at like ludicrous things that were going on, which this was also pre-social media and pre cameras So it was, you know, much more debaucherous, even though those clubs were extremely formal in their kind of process and setup. When Steve and I were playing, especially early on, we were very bad. Uh, We didn't know how to like transition from one song to the next. It was all about the energy of it. Yeah. you know, It was like, how do we get people to jump? How do we get people to yell? How do we just keep things going? And it didn't matter that we were good or had any skills. Like the audience was there and they were going crazy. And every Thursday night when fucking awesome was, it was always the most insane place with the most insane people that you'd ever been to. And it really was a collection of all the misfits that didn't yet have a home. Looking back at, those photos you see, and you know, the capacity there was like 80 people, it was small, but every single person in that room went on to do something really amazing or create a scene of their own or create a party of their own or a label of their own or a band. But all those people at the time, and you look at those photos, like none of them make sense together in today's lens, but they needed a, an, an outlet then. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of started there. So when people from these other clubs would walk in and see this, they would be like, what the fuck is going on? And how is this working? And then we definitely took a lot of pride in kind of being able to challenge the Hollywood norms with our DIY point of view.
0: There's been some arguments even on my page about people saying this was a time of gatekeeping. But what I found about this time is, yes, there was some of that online and on blogs, but like you mentioned, you and Steve Aoki weren't good in the beginning, but people were still having this very positive response to the parties you were throwing. And you and Steve Aoki had competing parties at one point, which I think is like really interesting. And I kind of hope that that happens again in the future, because I think it really inspires this creative drive. How did you differentiate Check Your Ponytail from Cinespace in terms of energy and aesthetics?
1: I think it's important to establish a quick timeline here. Like I was just talking about fucking awesome, which I think was like 2000, let's say into 2003 to 2000, I don't know, five or six. And Cinespace started about a year. And Jason Stewart was working over there at slash VAM jeans. He was like, I want you guys to take over this Tuesday night, which we did. Now once Cinespace started, It was a totally different monster. Mm -hmm. It was a much bigger venue. You know, we went from this 80-person party to like a 500-person party. And both of these parties were happening every week. Cinespace, in particular, began to exist right when the blog house stuff began to happen. And you started to have that era of artists. But this also created this kind of rift in agenda and kind of where we were trying to take our careers between me and Steve, you know, Mm -hmm. where as the electronic scene grew and then as more and more celebrities began to come to the party, I was more interested in rejecting that stuff and Steve a little bit more interested in embracing that. And I don't think there's anything really wrong with, with either point of view, but it was a kind of a very different stance at the time. And this kind of became a situation where You know for lack of a better term we were kind of getting in each other's way Mm -hmm. and as that happened we began to fight to a point where i think the whole like last six months of our partnership we were spending most of our time DJing together without ever even talking it was very weird energy somehow we kept the party going the entire time (laughs) but like arguing constantly it didn't really come as like that much of a surprise when kind of the point came when you know, Steve kind of made a play to, like, house me out of Cinespace. And I left there, I think, in, like, April 2006. And, you know, it was kind of a, a big, bitter fight, and I basically got kicked out, and I was pissed. Yeah. And so I started to check your ponytail on Tuesday nights directly to compete against Cinespace. Not necessarily with the intent of, like, taking them down. I didn't think that I had, like, that kind of power. But I definitely wanted to, like, challenge them. And it was like an opportunity, I guess, for me to make my own name, you know, like mm-hmm. Steve from a like popularity or established career point of view had always kind of been further. And I was still new in Los Angeles and I comics, especially as both a brand, but also as a record label, because in 2005, we had put out our first record by Matt and Kim, you know, that was like something that, I really wanted to like kind of go off in the world and establish like this is who we are and this is what we are doing. And Czechia became much more an expression of that. Mm-hmm. The main difference between the two parties, Checkio was more based around like the live experience. You know, we had DJs and we had a DJ dance party at the end, but it was much more performance based and talent based. It was a single room. 500 capacity venue, whereas CineSpace had the two rooms, so it was a little bit more nightclub based. That was something that was often a complaint from bands playing at CineSpace was that everyone wanted to be dancing and they didn't have a great performance experience. That wasn't a hundred percent true, but it was often a like it issue. And there was a whole new wave of like really amazing artists that I wanted to showcase. So Czechio became more about Who was on tour? Who was the like new act that we could get and kind of like showcase? And that competition between the two parties it got pretty dirty very fast. There was this essentially a turf war in Los Angeles for about a year or two, where you're on Steve's side or on my side, and like you could go to that party, you could go to this party, you couldn't go to both parties. Me and Mark are like really good friends now, but like during that era, he was like, he, he sided with like Steve, you know? So mm-hmm. I'm in like, a shit ton of cobra snake photos up until 2006 then you don't see me again for like five years oh, No, but that
0: is fine i
1: had my own photographers i had my own infrastructure
0: yeah you have all these amazing polaroids that i love to see i need more of them for my page actually because people
1: love the ones that you sent me a little while ago there are tons of those but like shadow scenes caesar sebastian glenn jam and like a few other photographers were kind of our like main go-to's at the time and you know we've got equally incredible photo sets from all of that those two competing parties on the same night i think that lasted for like a year and a half or like so and competition breeds really awesome energy
0: yeah, I could see it being the plot of a film, really. We need like a do over of a film that represents that era because I talked with Lena about um, We Are Your Friends, that film. It's terrible. Yeah. How did you go about curating the best lineup for a party? Like, what did a lineup have to have for you in order for it to kind of inspire people to get dancing?
1: I mean, I think it's all about the energy. Mm-hmm. I really love finding complementary combinations especially unexpected ones i'm the most bored at shows or parties where it's like four of the same act yeah i want diversity i want a menu i want to discover something but i also want them all to make sense together i feel like i've always had a very natural knack for understanding like this thing makes sense with that Mm -hmm. i was fiercely competitive and passionate to fight for what I thought created the best art and trying to create an environment where whatever act was there could thrive. It's just like curating a playlist in a, in a, in a sense, you know, like mm-hmm. find those things that feel really good together for reasons that you can't explain. But also don't think about only what's on the stage. Think about the full experience of it. What's it like to park? What's it like to check in? Like, what's it like when you walk in the room How easy is it to order a drink? All those things add up to like a much better experience for the people there.
0: Was there an act that you helped bring into the scene that you were proud to see succeed and felt like you were a part of their success in a big way?
1: I would definitely hesitate to ever say like I was responsible for someone's career because because the people like work very hard on what they do. And there's many, many, many factors. Matt and Kim was the first artist that we signed to our label. Mm-hmm. At the time, they were pretty much a DIY punk band playing in Brooklyn. And I like flew out to see them and immediately fell in love with everything they were doing and who they were and what they were about. And you know, somehow talked them into signing to our label. Being able to introduce them to the larger dance world you know, to bring them to different areas of the globe and introduce them to promoters and DJs and scenes, help them develop a career that was beyond where they started, you know, but it was their energy, intelligence and creativity and business prowess that catapulted them way beyond that. I feel like I've had the immense pleasure of being with lots of different artists at various stages in their careers to give some artists like a little boost or some help or we helped each other. I think that's just one of the beautiful things about being in a seat. It's never a one way road in that sense. Like I discovered them, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like we worked with Diplo for years and years and years, you know, like whether it's him or with Mad Decent or like whatever. And we collaborated on, Our South by Southwest parties for I think, like 10 years in a row. You know, that was a great relationship at that time that was mutually beneficial. Would I claim that I made his career? Absolutely not.
0: Yeah. First of all, I love that 2009 album by Matt and Kim Grand with the song Good Old Fashioned Nightmare. That's like one of my favorite songs. So that's really cool, your connection to that band. I meant it more in just like, not that you necessarily were the reason that would make or break their career. But there were a lot of times in the aughts where people would discover a band or they'd go to a small show and they'd tell everyone about this band. They're like, you gotta go and see this band. They're amazing. Their music is so good. And people don't really listen to you or they don't really take your suggestions seriously. And then later on that band blows up and then they're like, see, I told you. Like, it's kind of that sort of thing where you put people onto something because you believe in their artwork and you really want other people to know it too.
1: That was always the fight with Chekyo and Chekyo Ponytail 2. Mm -hmm. The whole point of that series was being on the forefront of music. Just for clarity, Chekyo Ponytail ran from 2006 to 2008, and then we brought it back later as Chekyo Ponytail 2, the sequel. (laughs) I love it. From 2010 to, I think, early 2015 the first iteration definitely had many of the first appearances in los angeles from people like justice boys noise spank rock you know like on and on and on like a murderer's row of that kind of like bloghouse era sound but check your point Tell two was decidedly more varied in the sound you know anyone from like blood orange and the drums to Killer Mike NLP, who later became run run the run the jewels and DOS racist. There's just a crazy list of artists that played that show. But both iterations were built with a particular branding, a particular content plan, and a particular PR plan to bring national attention and exposure to an individual party so that we can kind of say this artist is important. Mm-hmm. And to kind of get in front of that argument of like I don't believe you well look at this yeah it was always this like premeditated fight to try to expose something great that was the inspiration bit behind trying to get a record label going. It was the inspiration behind all of the parties and has been one of the predominant driver in IR comics in it's almost 20 years now.
0: With the DIY party scene that you were involved in, do you think that'll ever make a comeback in the same way? It never went away. Yeah, that's true. There are still a lot of DIY events even in my city here in Toronto. I guess when I read about it though, it just sounds like there was a lot more opportunity and leeway. There was more you could get away with, I felt. I mean,
1: I would argue that's not true. It's true in certain ways. This is a subject that I feel like most people get wrong, to be honest, because I feel like anyone talking about a scene is usually talking about a scene purely through their own experience or their own taste, And they're not seeing what is happening holistically. I've heard you talk many times about the power of that era and blog house and it was lawlessness and music was free and all this stuff of the changing technology of the time created this kind of punk rock feeling of anyone could be anything and have access and discover anything. And that was a result in some ways of the punks winning what they were fighting for in the eighties and nineties. All of a sudden we all got what we wanted because technology changed things. And that kind of spurt of energy created an environment where yes, we could discover stuff and create something that day and go out that night and play it. That exposure of artists from the promoter point of view, created this like brief moment where we could really book anything, I guess this is the point you're trying to get to, without any like real consequences or competition. Mm -hmm. And it kind of took that solidification of platforms like Spotify and Apple Music, the popularity of electronic music into what became EDM all of the wider infrastructure in the music industry, taking notice of the ability to monetize things and deciding to kind of create a monopoly of the system. And this goes all the way down to how shows are booked and who owns a venue. When I started booking shows in Los Angeles, people like Golden Voice or Live Nation, AG, Did not care about really anything under uh, like a 1500 capacity room. So if I was throwing a 200 to 500 person party, an agent could look at a region like Los Angeles and say, okay, my new Bloghouse Act or Electronic Act or Indie Rock Act that I need to break into this city, I can go to venue X and have them sell 200 tickets to an audience that was, you know, maybe advertised to through MySpace or the radio, or I can maybe make a little bit less money, but I can put them in party Y and expose them to a guaranteed crowd of 400 to 500 people. And a lot of times in a introductory play, we were winning that battle as the cool party because it was like an automatic exposure for an artist. The next time they could go to the AEG or Live Nation or Golden Voice and say, let us play your 1,500 person room. Then maybe we would get the after party for it. Mm-hmm. That weight in the community allowed us to both book and advertise those artists in a way that I think looking back on it, you can be like, oh, that party was sick. It had Romeo and Diplo and blah, 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 all the same party. That's crazy. But that time was extinguished by those larger companies seeing that and deciding that they're gonna buy every venue that was smaller and kind of take a larger market share of what was going on and kind of absorb the like scene in that way. So all of a sudden, you're competing with well, can my artist play Coachella? Or do they want to play your small party? You know, and so that definitely changed the dynamic in the same way that like Spotify changed blogs. Yeah, but the story doesn't end there. And I think that's what's actually so amazing about what came out of that era and this is the kind of the part that i feel like people don't a, acknowledge going back to those early parties like fucking awesome tennis base, check banana split those parties were done at a time when we could say who was playing and kind of have like some branding you know we were thinking about it as a brand that could exist on its own but not in such a sophisticated way the kids that were at those parties we were like, this is cool, but I can do it better. Right. And those people that were in those rooms started their own things. And the parties that were in those rooms from those new parties started their own things. And every single one got much more sophisticated in their approach as what a brand can be, what the power of a brand is, and what the scene is that you build around your niche audience. All of that became much more powerful than booking any individual artist. Nowadays, and I'm just speaking about Los Angeles, but this is true in a lot of places. LA probably has 30 party names that I can just name that you would know what it looks like, what it sounds like, and who plays those parties probably without really ever seeing a flyer that, you know, some are advertising acts, some aren't. We have things like Low in Theory, a club called Rhonda Brownies and Lemonade, Emo Nights, Space Yacht, on and on and on. They're all like, evolutions of that time and they've done it in such a bigger batter bolder way whereas like these are like global franchises these are merch lines these are festival stage acts these are record labels you know like these are creative agencies on the side and it's such a vibrant amazing part of the global music scene at this point that is a direct reaction from your live nations and your aegs putting a squash on the parties. It didn't kill the parties. They just became better at it.
0: One of my favorite DIY venues closed because now that area is just super expensive and it's too loud. The residents complain about it and that's happened to similar venues here but Montreal still has a lot of that ethos of the DIY party scene and I'm sure it's much bigger in the United States as well. So I love to hear that. That's a very like great thing that I haven't heard before on any of my interviews. So that makes me really happy and it's a really positive kind of outlook.
1: I'm sorry to hear about Toronto, you know, like I'm definitely speaking from a very skewed perspective here, but I mean like It's always only a matter of time before that next kid comes along in any scene and decides to like break the code, you know?
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: And like Toronto was always a really amazing place to go play really awesome people there, such a vibrant community. So I hope that you guys find it again.
0: There's a lot of raves and ravines and parks, which is great in the summertime. Yeah. When you think back to this time and a party that just really felt so special, like what's that one night for you?
1: Probably the earliest version of that one night would be October 2006, Halloween night. We had Justice's first show in Los Angeles, as well as Mastercraft. This was at Chackia Ponytail at Safari Sam's. The flyer for the show is horrendous, <laughs> but it felt like such a gamble at the time. Greg from Acid Girls, I had just met them. They were doing a blog. We actually later signed them on our label. But at the time, Greg was kind of the like ultimate authority of who was coming up in the blog sphere. And he was like, you have to do a show with this group, Justice. And I was like, kind of familiar with them. And like shortly afterwards, the agent reached out and was like, you have to book them. They're the like next thing. And I honestly booked them for such a low rate, but it was also this controversial moment where Cinespace really wanted them and we beat them out. You know, there was like a lot of like beefing in between me and Steve over that. From my perspective, it felt like a big win, mm-hmm. and that night was just super special. It was very hot, very insane. Lots of cool costumes. It was like just one of those moments where people were like, "Yeah, you have to like be there" because the energy was just so nuts.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine Justice and Mastercraft amazing. I saw both of them here in Toronto, but not in the same night. That'd be a lot of fun.
1: But it was funny. We had done a show with Mastercraft like I want to say like six months prior. We used to throw these like warehouse parties and we had MasterCraft play and they had never been to LA and LA at the time there was not DJ shows that you paid to go to. So like when people bought tickets to go to the show and MasterCraft went on stage and began playing, which was DJing, like the crowd did not respond to anything. And I had several people walk up and be like, when are they starting to play? And I'm like, that's them on stage because the idea of an act as a DJ Was so foreign. It's crazy.
0: I really wish I had been down there during that time. Like, I was able to go to England because I have family there and I experienced some of the scene that they had there. And I went to New York one time in 2007, but again, it was like not really to do any partying. So. Though I do feel like Canadians really did embrace this scene a lot. Like it was a big deal here and everyone was waiting to read the blogs and see the pictures uploaded from the previous night's parties. So we all were really looking at you all partying and wishing
1: we could be there. That was the magic of what Mark did. You know, it was like DIY paparazzi at a time when people really understood what the paparazzi was. You know, you had your Lindsay Lohan's and Paris Hilton's. And everything, and that culture was extremely mainstream. So to give a alternative look at a different lifestyle through the same lens, essentially was like super groundbreaking. And I think it gave everyone else around the world this window, not only into the parties, but Mark was very intentional in terms of like selecting certain characters. Corey is the obvious person who was like his kind of it girl but even like steve or me or like certain bands you know it was like we were in there all the time Mm -hmm. every set or every other set that's what made our career much more so than how good we were as djs like that kind of came much later (laughs) but it was that people were like oh these parties look crazy and these are the guys playing it let's have them play sundance you know yeah it was mark that made us famous
0: what was your initial reaction to this indie sleaze revival or the era being termed that moniker?
1: I don't really have an opinion on the moniker. I would say I kind of like it better than Bloghouse because it's a little bit more encompassing. It works better as a catch-all. I think of that era, which is not defined by a particular sound and no cohesive look. What do I think about the revival? I have a very like complicated reaction to it. On a certain level, like it's cool. I appreciate that people care, but I also feel like that era of my life, who I was at that time and what I do in my life now is so far removed. Yeah, I am much more of a fan of the future and thinking about the future. And I am very proud of the life that I've built and where we're going. Like IR Comics is a bigger, better, stronger business now than it ever was. Mm -hmm. and I have a more complete and fulfilling life now than being out and drunk seven days a like week, you know, like it was a lot of fun. I don't look back on it negatively, but I don't look back on it. Like that was the best time of my life. I feel like I'm living that now. Yeah. I very firmly do not want to be one of those people that is living in the past. And I don't say that in a way like, I'm not trying to insult you. Oh, no,
0: not at all. Because
1: <laughs> I also think there's a validity to the perspective of it. And what I do love about it is the potential passing of the torch to the next generation. Mm-hmm. That's the part of it that I think is especially cool. You know, you started this interview off mentioning just like heaven, where I would point my negativity is to, I love them, but still a golden voice for kind of only choosing to do it as a nostalgia fest. Mm -hmm. Whereas like you could have just booked like 10 more artists that are now that are relevant and had anyone there under 35 to discover this classic wave of artists and the older people that were there could have seen how the thing that they loved when they were younger inspired this whole next wave. And like book some like relevant DJs that are playing now. There's like 21 year old kids right now booking DJ nights in Los Angeles, and they're only playing indie sleaze style music, but mixed with people like Sophie and Charlie XCX and on and on. Like they are already doing this. Yeah, you're excluding them. Like you're not making this podcast only for like us 200 old fucks that you can talk to about it. It's because a whole new generation of people that are interested.
0: Yeah, I get tagged in so many flyers for these new kind of Indie Sleaze nights that are put on by these young kids who are embracing this music. And like you said, mixing it with like newer acts that kind of feel like they could be inspired by that time. On that note, like what is your Indie Sleaze anthem? Or like what's the song from this era that just for you really defines that time?
1: We released an artist called the Toxic Avenger. On his first EP, he was like, I'm going to have my friends do a remix. And it was this new duo from Italy called The Bloody Beat Nice. And we put out their first release as a remix of a Toxic Avenger track. And that song became a huge hit. It was even in like Fast and Furious trailer.
0: I remember that trailer.
1: Which was a personal moment of pride because I'm a huge Fast and Furious fan. But I think that song defines... The era for me a lot because it was this very specific moment for us as a label for like my music taste. Like Justice and Boys Noise and Simeon had kind of come before, but Toxic was like very much like kind of part of that like early wave. Toxic never quite hit the same popularity heights as the rest, but his sound was very similar. And as a label that was kind of new, it kind of opened up a lot of doors. I could listen a ton more songs than I'm like a big fan of. I'm an unabashed Soulwax fan with pretty much anything that they touch, Same. but especially their remixes of the era. There's not a bad one of the bunch. Yeah. It's hard to pick just one.
0: What were some of your favorite blogs of that time?
1: Big Stereo, Disco, uh, fucking. They're like out of Sweden or something. Man, they're going to hate me that I can't remember their name. Fluo Kids, Acid Girls, Palms Out Sounds. I was a big fan of our own blog, iHeart Comics, Mm -hmm. just because we had really great writers and they would bring all kinds of cool shit. And I feel like I learned a lot from that team. Trying to think of who else. It's shitty that I can't think of the disco name because they were probably my favorite blog. I think I got the most amount of stuff from them. Sorry, guys.
0: No, you tell me after. We're done recording this and I'll just include it in the description. Okay. We'll give them the credit they deserve. What are some of your favorite hipster
1: movies from this era? I don't know if I have good hipster movies from this era. I feel like I was watching a lot of movies from right before this era.
0: Yeah, that counts too.
1: And like, and applying it to this Era. The movie that I pulled a lot of like ethos from was a movie called Pump Up the Volume with Christian Slater. Yes. I just always loved how he expressed himself and how he took the community into his own hands to try to make it better. I really love filmmakers like Danny Boyle, Train Spotting. That was a big one. Wes Anderson films, Spider-Man two. <laughs> That was a really great movie from that era. The music was so good in it, too.
0: Like, the score for it. Danny Elfman. Yes, so good. I feel
1: like my movie timeline is all over the place, but...
0: I think Pump Up the Volume is a good one. Isn't the main character's Christian Slater's name Mark Hunter in that?
1: Mark Hunter? That's crazy. (laughs) I thought that was his name in the movie. I thought it was Mark Hunter. I could be wrong. That would be hilarious. You know, this era or as Bloghouse was winding down was kind of when the like Marvel cinematic universe era began. And I took a lot of inspiration from the audacity to like do something with that big of an idea.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: it's like, be like, oh, you know, this has never been done. Let's just go for it. In those Bloghouse years, I was looking for inspiration, whether it came from music or films that had a similar outlook that was especially smart not just creatively but how they produced it and marketed it and how they positioned it and the process behind it was always kind of what really like stood out for me and like where i was playing the most inspiration from from that era was the marvel comic books before even they got to the movies there was this run of like 6 years where they were doing like one big event into the next and the stories were like good, but the marketing for it was just so fucking brilliant. And it was done in this like vacuum of the comic book space, which like no one in pop culture respected, but it was so forward thinking. And so groundbreaking that it is the formula that you see in most pop culture now, but it was really only happening to the small group of people. And I was just reading those stories furiously and stealing everything that I could from how they were doing it, applying it to like parties and the record labels and all of this stuff like that. The IHC aesthetic and approach was like very plainly stolen from that.
0: What's one of your favorite Wes Anderson films?
1: I mean, Royal Tenenbaums was great. Yeah. I also love the Darling Limited.
0: Yeah, that one's great. I love the Fantastic Mr. Fox. I haven't heard much love for that one, but I don't know why I really, I really like that one.
1: You know, I've never seen that one.
0: Some people think it's a little, like, too strange or something, but I really enjoy it. I think you should check it out. I will. So I have to ask, this isn't really, like, an indie least question all, but who's your favorite Spider-Man in the movie adaptations
1: of the comics? Andrew Garfield. Nice. Which is a super controversial answer. It is. They're not my favorite movies, but he's, he, he's my favorite Spider-Man. In my
0: opinion, I thought he was very cool in that film, so I was like, I don't know if I buy that he's like
1: kind of an outcast. Especially in the first movie, he's a little bit too cool for school skater kids. Yeah. I love the Tom Holland version. He's fucking brilliant, and- Obviously, having Spider-Man in the larger shared universe is super cool. And the Tobey Maguire version is very classic Spider-Man, like kind of the like Stanley Steve Ditko era. It's kind of cheesy and it has that Sam Raimi feel, which is amazing. But Andrew Garfield got like the heart of it so right. And that really shows in No Way Home when they're all three together. He's the emotional core. Yeah, that's true. And in some ways, even though it's a very brief moment, he has the most deep emotional arc when he saves MJ. And it's like such a redemptive moment for him as like a human being to succeed where he had failed prior.
0: Yeah. Well, a lot of people who are fans of the comics, actually, I find tend to prefer Andrew Garfield's performance. So you're probably all onto something. I know at work, this was a question that was asked and I said Tobey Maguire and everyone said, no one likes those Spider-Man movies. I'm like, that's not true. That's not true at
1: all. Spider-Man 2 is like, Phenomenal.
0: And I was like in love with the soundtrack. I even loved that Nickelback song. I was super oh, into wow. that. Oh,
1: Okay. <laughs> That's where we... I'm
0: not ashamed to admit deviate. it. I loved it. <laughs> it was on a mixtape that I made and everything. I was super into it. Maybe because <laughs> I'm Canadian and they're Canadian. I don't know. That's hilarious. Have you played the PS4 Spider-Man game?
1: I haven't, but I, I hear it's incredible.
0: Yeah, you should definitely play it. It's pretty freaking sweet. So I kind of ask every guest this. Will there be a return of power for independent artists, kind of like this disruptive way for independent artists to sort of rely less on record labels in order to build their career or make money and have, you know, an income from their artwork?
1: I'm going to err on the side of kind of a controversial answer for this one too, but I think artists have more options of being independent and making money now than they ever did. Could they make more and could they be better compensated by people like... Spotify? Yes, of course. Like, I think Mm -hmm. that there's still work to be done there. But just to put things into perspective, if I was an 18-year-old kid and I was like, I want to start a band or I want to produce music, if I can't afford a laptop, I could probably do it on my phone. I could put it on TikTok, and if people like it, it's going to go viral. I have the ability of putting out my own music on TuneCore or like whatever. I have my social media, which is free. There's any type of like manager, PR, agent, access, infrastructure for all levels of artists, as well as venues to play at that didn't exist prior. Yeah. When I started playing music in high school in the late 90s, there was no booking agents for us. There's no PR for us. We had to like get on a payphone and call some weird kid in California to hopefully play his basement and, you know, have a roadmap, one made out of paper and drive across the country and hope that the show was there. When we showed up, there was no guarantee. You can be fiercely independent now in a way that you never could prior. Does that guarantee success? Does that guarantee that you'll make money? Does it guarantee that anyone will hear you? No, you know, and that has all to do with your ability to exist In the other components of the industry that are required to make an impact now. Mm -hmm. An understanding of like image and marketing and distribution. These are all key factors that you can also do yourself. Yeah. In this push and pull between corporate and independent, it's never going to end. Yeah. But with every new wave of tech technology, there are incremental steps forward. And we're all learning and building off of the progress already made. Mm-hmm. That's phenomenal. This point of view of like, I can't do it as an artist because blah, blah, blah. In my opinion, is bullshit. <laughs> in the words of Kim Kardashian, you just got to get up and work, you know?
0: I love that. <laughs> do you watch the Kardashians? No. You just saw that one clip and you were like, you know what? She's onto
1: something here. She shared a clip of Mark Rebier with that. And he's the host of a show that we produce right now called We've Got Company. So I saw that and I just thought it was very funny.
0: What are some interesting things you notice when you revisit your vast collection of Polaroids from the era?
1: I think the difference between Polaroids and like what Mark does is that a Polaroid camera is not great at movement. Most of my photos are people posed. It is a little bit more like Hey, guys, let's take a picture versus like Mark just being like, what's up? (laughs) So his are much more candid. Mine are more personal in terms of like who I was talking to and who I knew for the most part. The thing that always amazes me when I look back at those photos is just the combinations of people. You would never see this combination of people in a room now.
0: I've seen a lot of people actually buying those Polaroid cameras. They've been popular for quite a few years now. Is there like some sort of technology from that era you would maybe like to see come back?
1: No. No. (laughs) You're
0: like, I'm looking forward to the future and all of the new (laughs) technological advancements that come along. I don't want an iPod. I have an iPhone.
1: I get zero pleasure out of like old technology. I still have my, all my CDs and my tapes, but I literally never listen to them. Like if I need to go back and like look at something for archival purposes, I do love the access, mm-hmm. but I just like, why would you want to live that life again? It was so much more tedious.
0: <laughs> you should tell that to Gen Z because apparently the sales of iPods on eBay and stuff like that are going through the roof right now. But it's a
1: fact. It's a fashion accessory versus any real thing, because all those motherfuckers are still listening to everything on Spotify. They're not going to (laughs) iTunes and buying tracks and putting it on their iPod. I guarantee you.
0: What do you think I should feature more of on my page?
1: Well, I think it'd be great to see just more, like, people that were at the shows... I feel like you've been lately very celebrity heavy Mm -hmm. and I'm sure that gets more likes. So I get it, but kind of balancing that out with a bit more of the scene.
0: And the fan submissions. Yeah.
1: I've always been a very community driven person. I get a lot of pleasure out of the people that come up from the scene and go do great things and like looking at individuals and saying like, I remember when they made that decision and now that has reverberated into like a global impact. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that I feel like people need to see more of.
0: I actually have so many submissions that I need to get to. It's uh, more of an issue of when I'm busy, sometimes it's just easier to throw up the celebrity photo than to organize all the fan submissions because sometimes they're a bit chaotic. I'll just get sent like 30 photos with no explanation of what, what it is. And I'm like begging for information, but you're totally right. And I will take you up on that advice. I kind of wanted to move on to iHeart Comics and just focus on that a little bit. Like, what strategies did you employ to shape the perception of iHeart Comics new direction post-2016-ish?
1: Around 2016, we definitely had a like conscious direction shift from kind of being the version of iHeart Comics, which was always a combination of promoter, record label, and blog or website. A lot of my peers began to kind of get real jobs and a few of them started a creative agency and started to like get into work where they were like working with these brands to kind of do big experiences. While that was happening, there was a few things that happened for iHeart Comics. We expanded the number of shows we were doing in 2012 and then Golden Voice and Live of Nation started to buy up a bunch of stuff. So it became like a harder and harder financial strain to kind of keep doing what we were doing and the way we were doing it simultaneously we began to really think about it and like well what if we take the show part out of it? so what if we're just being creative but we don't have to sell tickets i felt like the content we were making and you know our like art direction and design and pr skills and all these things were like way more powerful than the microcosm of a show that we were trying to fit all that into so we did an experiment where we made this television show version of Chekyo Ponytail called The Chekyo Show. And we shot a pilot on our own and through like a, a random series of occurrences, Seth Rogen saw it and was like, this is great. I want to make this show. He's, by the way, Canadian.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and
1: so we started being in a room with Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, our friend Alex McAtee, who was the one that believed in the show. Granted, that show never got made and died on the vine a few years later. It was a huge life lesson in the sense of, like, we're so small in our thinking. We should be thinking about this totally differently. I started to think about, like, how can we be smarter? And also, like, where do I want to be when I'm 50? I don't want to still be at the club. So I had to kind of start to, like, change directions. And it became a very natural Kind of step forward to start like collaborating some with our friends that had agencies, some of the friends that had come to our parties and that had gotten jobs at like Sundance and Adult Swim and Universal and places like that. Were like, hey, why don't you do what you do, but do it for us? So I just felt like the universe was like pushing us in that direction. We got a couple smaller jobs around this time, and then we kind of had a big breakthrough when I was at South by Southwest, and a friend of mine introduced me to a friend of his that worked at Disney and oversaw all the Marvel stuff. And I was just like, how do I become your best friend? And how do I do this? And his name was Dustin and he was like, so kind and gracious. And we went out and we got some drinks and we had fun and I bugged him for the next year. It's like, let us in, let us try. Eventually said, yes, we pitched on Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and we totally bombed. We did such a terrible job on that pitch, <laughs> and <laughs> I was like, you had to let me try again. He's like, okay, you will walk me through all the shit that I got wrong, which was awesome. Yeah, He's like, we're going to wait for the next opportunity. When it's right, you'll have one more chance. And that ended up being Black Panther. And we put all of our heart and soul into that one and got it and ended up doing a really amazing campaign. It was the second moment where it's like, we can do this on that level. Yeah. It was this kind of puberty phase from like 2015 to like, I guess we got that job in 2017 where you we were like trying things out and learning and kind of hitting a lot of roadblocks and walls and, People really did not want to accept that we were doing that because like, you guys are just the guys that throw parties. And it's like, no, 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 I'm allowed to grow up too and try to turn this into something more professional. And that was just such a watershed moment where we did it and we got that and we crushed it and just didn't look back from that point forward. The last, I guess, like three, four years of that, we've been very focused on building the agency and developing what that means and how it looks and what the brand is. And we have intentionally been kind of ignoring some of the Indie Sleaze era, the promoter, the record label era, because it was confusing the narrative, you know, because people would just couldn't get past it. You know, they're like, oh, you're still throwing parties and making comic books. Well, when I've never made a comic book in my entire life, nor has I comics ever published a comic book. I haven't thrown parties in six years, dude. So like you're not paying attention. Yeah. That was the like dominant response, even though we had discovered this whole new world that accepted us and allowed us to like thrive as like who we had become. Yeah. That attitude now feels to be changing. I feel like people are much more see our comics as the business we are now than the business we were then. And so we're having a lot of con, con- conversations about. Indie sleeves or that era or what it means because next year is our 20th anniversary. So we've earned, I think, a certain level of industry through what we've become. We can now kind of more freely acknowledge our past and include it and celebrate it.
0: Pitching is so difficult. Like that's sort of what I studied in school. And we had to pitch movies and pitch TV shows and we had to pitch them to a professional table of judges. And it's sometimes terrifying and it's really complicated. And that's so cool that you got to step into your dream job. That's so great. Congratulations. That's fucking awesome.
1: Thanks. Yeah, pitching is hard.
0: What's one recent project that you're just really, really proud of?
1: Well, one that we did... Last year was for Billie Eilish for the release of her new record, Happier Than Ever. We, in collaboration with Spotify and Interscope, and Billie's team direct, did the Happier Than Ever destination, which was like a three-day fan experience, as well as the kickoff party for her album. We took over a eight-acre estate in Beverly Hills, made it into like this fully immersive Happier than ever world with the representations of each song. And then, you know, we had this kick ass party with everyone from Olivia Rodrigo to Eric Andre there.
0: Yeah, I saw those pictures. They're so great.
1: Yeah, and it was beautifully done. Like the art team does such an amazing job bringing it to life. You know, what people don't see in the pictures was the absolute struggle to create that and do it safely because the COVID variant. Delta was creeping up at that time. Mm. And it was a very high stress situation where they could have canceled that event any day. There was a lot of money behind it. It was a very critical moment where they had spent, you know, however many years developing that campaign and doing all the different deals. And had there been one person that caught COVID or one thing went wrong at that party, it just would have been like a disaster for Spotify, Interscope, and Billy. So it was like high pressure, high stakes. All those teams are like hypercritical in the best way. Like they all understand exactly what they want, what their brands are. And it was a short timeline in addition to this like moving target, both creatively and Mm production-wise. We ended up building a full off-site drive-through testing facility a week prior. And that was like building a whole separate medical event in yeah. addition to a great party, you know? So it was very hard, but very fulfilling in the sense of like, it was such a success in the end.
0: That's really amazing. And that was a super memorable release of her album. So really great job. Is there a plan to celebrate that 20th anniversary?
1: We have some ideas bouncing around, but like nothing concrete. We're going through the very exciting process right now of organizing all the archives. So if anyone wants to just sit on a hard drive for hours, call me. I could use the help. (laughs) But no, I mean, we just haven't gotten quite there yet. Well, I look
0: forward to what you end up planning. Thank you so much for coming on the pod to talk to me about all things Indie sleeves and that era. And I loved your opinion and perspective. So yeah, this has been an extreme pleasure of mine. And I'm so sorry we didn't get to meet at Just Like Heavenfest, but hopefully we'll meet again in the future.
1: That would be awesome. I would love to meet you in person one day and meet the woman behind the myth. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me and inviting me on the show. And Really impressed by, by everything you've managed to do, and I can't wait to see what's next. Also,
0: thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. For our listeners, make sure to follow Frankie Chan on Instagram. Would you like to shout out at's
1: or websites that you want listeners to maybe go to? I mean, follow all the iHeart Comics stuff. That's iHeartComics with an X. I H E A R T C O M I X. That is at comics at literally every social network and platform there is so even TikTok, even TikTok, nice <laughs> and if you like really funny stuff we've been producing a live stream show with the infamous mark revier the past several months called we've got company it is a talk show inside of a sitcom with a lot of your favorite musical artists all talking eating gaming and jamming with mark it is super entertaining unlike anything you've ever seen We have one episode left on June 8th with Tenacious D, but you can find it all on YouTube if you know how to search. Yes,
0: I'm looking forward to that. I love Tenacious D. Are you a School of Rock fan? Hell yeah. (laughs) Amazing. That's what I like to hear. Thank you so much and see you later. See you later. See you later.